One fact the National Park Service doesn't like to advertise is that death does occur while you're on vacation. On average, someone dies in a national park once every two weeks. This episode, we're going to explore the leading causes and how to stay safe in the most popular parts of nature. Aren't most of those deaths drownings? Yes, and in most of those, alcohol's involved. So what you're saying is, to not die in Yellowstone, all I have to do is stay sober and not fall in a river? Mm, Yeah, pretty much. Well, that and don't piss off a bison. Okay, well, this was fun. See you all next time. Every Two Weeks is a look back at music from the 90s through a modern lens and nostalgic twinge. Hosted by two guys who have been friends since high school. Join us, Tom and Mark, as we examine old hits, forgotten favorites, and overlooked gems as we dive into the music that got us through all the fun of those awesomely awkward, angst-filled teenage years. One album at a time. I can tell you're excited. Do you know why? It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. Uh, I figured because we were doing something tonight that didn't feature somebody who's a complete scumbag. Uh, Yeah, so you may have noticed that we missed a drop for our episode. And I've got to be honest, I was wondering if the pure awfulness of Stephen Jenkins was the end of Once Every Two Weeks. But Mark and I have both survived that episode and we have come back and we are going to do something that is not terrible and awful tonight. I appreciate that you think anyone noticed. Hey, I think our listener noticed, and I want that listener to feel special and not called out for being the only one. (laughs) Anyway, how have you been? Last week was Thanksgiving, and I did not have a chance to tell you. I was thankful for you and or once every two weeks. Aww. So did you have a good Thanksgiving? Uh, I did have a Thanksgiving. How about you? Mine was good enough. You spent Thanksgiving with one of our three listeners, right? I did. I was around all of my family and none of whom have listened to a single episode of any podcast I've done in a long time. I did have a little bit of trauma. We were driving to Houston. Yeah. And I would just let Spotify or Apple Music build a playlist or whatever for us and play it. Always a mistake. It brought up so much Stephen Jenkins, no matter how many times I thumbs down and said, (laughs) you know, zero stars, do not like. I would still hear him. Yep. Always a mistake. But that has absolutely nothing to do with what we're going to cover tonight, which is Lisa Loeb and her nine tales. Stories. Oh, it's Lisa Loeb and her nine stories tales. Lisa Loeb and nine stories is the band. Tales is the album. I know I'm I'm being ridiculous. It was a joke that did not land. No, (laughs) it did not. You're welcome. That's weird for me. (laughs) No, it's not. No, both listeners know that's not true. So Lisa Loeb. Yeah. I was a fan of Lisa Loeb. Was? I still am. That's fair. I mean, it is one of those where I agree, like, I still consider myself a fan of Lisa Loeb, but I don't have anything that she's done since 2002. She was in Hot Tub Time Machine. She was in Hot Tub Time Machine 2, which I know because you kept talking about how she's in Hot Tub Time Machine. So when Hot Tub Time Machine recently was added to Netflix, I was like, okay, I'm going to watch this because you've been telling me to watch this. And I watched all of Hot Tub Time Machine and I'm like, where the hell is Lisa Loeb? (laughs) 
Yeah, no, it's Hop to Time Machine too. Craig Robinson singing her her hit that we're going to talk about tonight. One of her hits. She had more than just the one. I guess we're going to learn some stuff tonight. All right. But before we can start talking about Tales, the album by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories, we <laughs> should probably go back a little before then to May of 94 when the soundtrack to the movie Reality Bites dropped and how the inclusion of the song Stay turned Lisa Loeb into an overnight sensation. Although, if we're going back, then we should probably keep going to 1990 and take a look at how all of this started because of Hall and Oates, who have now got restraining orders against each other. Well, this might be getting out of hand with all the backtracking, so maybe we should just start with the beginning? Good call. So, the story of Lisa Ann Loeb, or Loab, as some people prefer to her, begins in July of 1967. I thought that she was born in March of 68? We're going back to the beginning, so let's count back nine months from there. That might be a little too far. Okay, I thought you wanted to be thorough, but whatever. Lisa Loeb was born March 11th, 1968 in Bethesda, Maryland to Gail and Peter Loeb. Her Wikipedia page makes note that she has a younger sister named Debbie, who is also a songwriter. And at a young age, the family moved to Tejas, where Lisa grew up in Dallas. She began to write songs as a kid and during high school, had a band, and also DJed on her school's local radio station. After high school, she went to Brown University. While at Brown, Lisa and another classmate, Elizabeth Mitchell, formed a band cleverly called Liz and Lisa. Ooh. Liz primarily sang the lead vocals and Lisa played guitar. She also did the bulk of the writing for the duo. And during their time together at school, they put out two albums. The first, a self-titled Liz and Lisa, and they followed that up a year later with Days Were Different. Now, I do think we need to note that this Elizabeth Mitchell is different than the actress Elizabeth Mitchell. There's an actress Elizabeth Mitchell? Mm -hmm. What Christmas movie was she in? She played Tim Allen's wife in The Santa Claus. She was in Lost. She was also in, like, Revolution, Nurse Betty, Hmm. The Purge. And then she did a lot of stuff on television. Interesting. Yeah. Completely different Elizabeth Mitchell then. Oh, and she was on Once Upon a Time. But yeah, there's a different Elizabeth Mitchell. When I saw her name, I went and looked earlier to see if it was the same, and it is not. Well, I'm glad that occurred to you, because I apparently have never heard of either of them before. Cool. Now, this Liz and Lisa, as a band, they were a presence not just in Providence where I learned Brown is located, but they would also make frequent enough trips to New York City that by the time they graduated, they already had club contacts and mild interest within New York City. Fun fact, while Lisa and Liz are both guitar players, they still managed to find room in the band so that additional backing guitar credits could be given to another classmate at Brown, a young man who went on to make some music of his own by the name of Duncan Sheik. Hmm. Are you a Duncan Sheik fan? I can't name a single song of his right off the top of my head, but I don't recall disliking him. I am barely breathing, and I can't find the air. You know the song, Barely Breathing? That was him, right? Now that you mention it, yes, but that's probably the first rendition that you've given us of a song that doesn't do the song justice. <laughs> yes, that was who he was. Lisa graduated from Brown in 1990 with a super useful degree in comparative literature. Do not knock literature degrees. They are super useful. 
it was so useful, in fact, that the summer after graduating from Brown, she did summer school at Berkeley College of Music, where it was brought to her attention that Daryl Hall of Hall & Oates Lawsuit Fame <laughs> was looking for songs and accepting submissions for material that would be on an upcoming album. So Lisa started writing a semi-autobiographical breakup song based on an argument she had had with a boyfriend. However, before the song was fully finished, Hall stopped looking for new songs, so Lisa was stuck with this brand new tune, which she had called Stay. Man, that did not work out well for her at all, did it? I guess time will tell. So, like a lot of folks at Brown, Liz and Lisa moved to New York, but ultimately broke up. And by the end of 1990, Lisa had her own band called Nine Stories. Lisa said about the name of the band that it was based on, quote, J.D. Salinger's collection of short stories called Nine Stories. We felt thematically that it fit what we were doing because of the songs I had written. They took element of things from daily life, normal mundane life, and there was a darkness to them. And for some reason, that felt right at the time. Hmm. She had also been introduced by some friends to an actor and playwright who was gaining some popularity at the time by the name of Ethan Hawke. And as luck would have it, they were neighbors who just happened to live across the street from each other. And Lisa made music for some of his plays. Nice. I've always found that an interesting coincidence because New York's not exactly a small place. So to live in a building just happens to be across the street from Ethan Hawke. That's pretty good luck. That is. I'm a big fan of Ethan Hawke. I enjoy most of what he does. Me too. During this time, Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories played all over New York. They played a lot of the more popular venues of the day and even Sibagiba. Is that how you pronounce it, Mark? Sibagiba? Okay. That joke didn't land either. CBGBs, which is rad, but also feels a little bit odd for Lisa Loeb. It does. I don't think of Lisa Loeb when I think of the CBGBs heyday of all the punk bands. Right. But good for her. Lisa Loeb doesn't give me the CBGBs. <laughs> This is a feat that she attributes to the work that she had done with Liz when they were starting out. And thanks to playing so much with her previous project that when she moved to New York City, she didn't have to struggle to break into that scene because she already had those connections. She'd been writing new stuff. And in 92, she self-released her first album on purple colored audio cassettes. So it became known as The Purple Tape. She is good with the clever titles. Yeah, she is. Kind of like a Weezer and their Blue Album. Or the Green Album. Or the Red Album. Or Pinkerton. Oh, wait, no. <laughs> Of the Purple Tape, Lisa has said that there was a whole scene of singer-songwriters and bands around the same time. It wasn't folk, though, necessarily. I wasn't a folk singer, even though I played guitar. That was often an issue back in the early 90s, that if you were a woman and you played acoustic guitar, you were a folk singer. But I didn't feel like a folk singer. And I think that with that quote, she makes a very important distinction. What's that? Maintaining that focus of being a band right and uh, trying to be in control of her image so she isn't misclassified as a folk artist it is a worthwhile effort and it's interesting because a lot of the reviews that i came across they kind of made the comparison talking about lisa loeb and nine stories as a female fronted hootie oh no i love cracked review and i, I have no problem with anyone making a hootie and the blowfish comparison because i love them it just doesn't land for me well i can see it because hootie's not a hard rock band and they had a lot of acoustic elements as a band but I have never thought of Hootie as being a folk band or even a folk rock band. So if you're going to make the comparison to Hootie, but then try to call Lisa a folk singer, it's like pick a lane. And now Darius Rucker is a country singer. 
which is sad because I really enjoyed the one R&B album that he put out in early 2000s that, like every other R&B album, had a track that featured Snoop Dogg. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot about that. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, it was interesting and a little curious that Stay was not included on the Purple Tape, although it was one that she had done a proper recording of with a full band. and She played it regularly at shows, and it was a fan favorite. Hmm. So much so that her pal and neighbor, Ethan, you know, Ethan Hawke. Oh, that Ethan. Yeah, that one. And Ethan took that song and showed it to his boss, Ben Stiller, who had written and was directing a movie starring Hawk that you may have heard of from the 90s called Reality Bites. Stiller liked the song and decided to include it on the movie's soundtrack. Ben Stiller said in an interview with Entertainment Weekly, quote, It was one of those great experiences where the song was written totally independently of the film and happened to be exactly what the film was about. To which Lisa added, I'm just excited they chose something because they liked it, not because it's popular commercially. Which is funny because the soundtrack for Reality Bites was released in May of 94 and Stay as a Song did end up becoming very popular commercially. So much so that by August of 94, Stay reached number one on the Billboard Hot 100 and held the top spot for three weeks. Oh. It went on and spent 27 more weeks total on the chart. And since Lisa and company were not signed to a record label at the time, this made Lisa Loeb the first person in the history of mankind to achieve number one song status as an independent artist. Whoa. Something that had previously been considered an impossibility by the industry. And for the next 19 years, she stood alone in that achievement. Stay also reached number five on the adult contemporary chart, seven on the modern rock tracks chart, and number one on the top 40 mainstream chart. It peaked at number six in Australia and the UK, 14 in New Zealand, and nine in Iceland. Spin ranked it number 20 on their top 20 songs of 94, and it was nominated for a Grammy for Best Pop Performance by a Group. Fun fact, all of this is thanks to what at the time was Houston's modern rock station, 104KRBE, which was the first radio station to pick the song out of all the others on the soundtrack and add it to their regular rotation. Listeners may be surprised to know Mark and I were fans of 104KRBE back in the day. Not that surprised, though. We've talked about them before. I mentioned my hat on our Beastie Boys episode. Oh, you did, didn't you? I did. Looking back on the success of Stay, Lisa said, I didn't know if it was going to be my big break, but I was really excited. I quit my temp job when I found out the song was going to be on the soundtrack. It was something very concrete towards having a music career, which had been bubbling under for three years for me at this point. It was the first thing that made me feel like I was going to be on a bigger level. U2 and Dinosaur Jr. were on the soundtrack. So it was a variety of bands from different genres I respected. It wasn't like I was selling out. It was like being part of a really cool mixtape. In some ways, it played out exactly like I had hoped. All these record companies who were sort of interested in me, this made them brave enough to actually be more specifically interested. (laughs) Really, Lisa? You hoped that the song would take off and be successful? That's weird. I didn't know musicians were into that sort of thing. Who knew? Dinosaur Jr. is somebody I've been listening to recently that I didn't get into much back in the day, but I really like. Nice. There was that kid at our school that always wore a Dinosaur Jr. shirt that I don't remember his name. (laughs) I remember the kid. You know who I'm talking about? (laughs) Because if it wasn't Dinosaur Jr., it was the Sebado shirt, right? Yes. Okay, so we're talking about the same kid. 
like Lisa said, there was plenty of interest as six different major labels all made Lisa offers, including RCA, who released the Reality Bite soundtrack, which for RCA was a giant backpedaling because prior to the success of Stay, a group of RCA execs had gone to see her perform at a club in New York, and the general consensus from that group after the performance was underwhelming, and they decided they weren't going to pursue trying to sign One exec has told the story that after Stay blew up, they were given a corporate credit card and instructed to buy her anything she wanted. (laughs) But Lisa wasn't having that and eventually signed to Geffen to have them back and release her major label debut, which quite possibly may have been the most anticipated release of 1995. Pre-production on what would become the album known as Tales began in the late summer of 94 at Applehead Studios in Woodstock, New York. And tracking for the album proper started in September of 94 in Midtown Manhattan in a small studio that also doubled as co-producer Juan Patino's apartment, which in a way was fitting as Patino himself doubled as Lisa Loeb's boyfriend. However, before we get much further into that, we should probably shift focus for a minute to shine a light on... And Nine Stories. While Lisa has top billing in the band name and has gotten all of the fame from the album, one thing that is important to focus on here is while we both love Lisa, the album is great because it is not just a one-woman show. It's a full band album, and the band really does add a lot. During the early years, there was a core group of musicians who made up the band for live shows, and while many of those members are on the record, the group of players and contributors to this album extends further, so I wanted to make sure that we give recognition to a bunch of people for working on the album, give credit where credit's due, and we're going to go through a bunch of names with no rhyme or reason or any order to this, starting with... Ben Loeb. No relation. Ben Loeb is a classical pianist and symphony conductor. And while it doesn't look like he played anything on this album, there are violins and cellos throughout, and he did all the string arrangements for those parts. For some reason, Mark couldn't find an entry for Ben on Wikipedia. Or at least not on the English wiki. Okay, so you did find an article for him on the German Wikipedia, right? Yes. So maybe Germans just have a greater appreciation for classical music. I wouldn't be surprised. Nah, I don't know. Anyway, according to German Wikipedia and Google Translate, Ben grew up in Dallas, Texas, and was born to Gail and Peter Loeb, no relation to Lisa, or her parents, Gail and Peter. And he has a younger sister named Debbie, who is a songwriter, also no relation to Lisa Loeb's sister, Debbie, who is a songwriter. So Tom is a complete liar. (laughs) Because despite Wikipedia ever acknowledging it, Lisa and Ben are in fact siblings. And in addition to Debbie, they have a younger brother who is a mixing engineer. So all four siblings have landed at different places within the music business. It's so weird they just don't say that they were siblings. Yeah, it still seems odd. Anyway. Anyway, moving on down the list. Next up, we have Jesse Harris, who played additional acoustic guitar. Jesse had played in a duo in the mid-90s called Once Blue. He put out a bunch of solo albums, and he won a Grammy in in 2003 for writing Don't Know Why, which was made popular by Nora Jones despite being the most uninteresting song of that year and possibly all of the early aughts. (laughs) 
He played guitar for Connor Oberst and company on one of the two Bright Eyes releases from 2005, I'm Wide Awake, It's Morning. He also contributed a bunch of his original songs to have other artists cover for the soundtrack of the movie The Hottest State, which was written and directed by Ethan Hawke, based on the novel The Hottest State, which was written by Ethan Hawke. Prior to this, had you heard of The Hottest State by Ethan Hawke or the film The Hottest State? Yes, I have seen the movie after discovering that Ethan had written some books. I have both The Hottest State and Good Friday, or at least I have purchased both of them. My buddy Sean currently has had both copies for years because I let him borrow them to read one time and I've never gotten them back. Sean Ramos? Yep, Sean Ramos. Back in the days when I was drumming for him and Quiet Morning the Calamity. Oh, so he's had them for a while. He's had them for a long time now, yeah. But yeah, I enjoyed both of them. Joe Quigley, not from Down Under, was on the bass. In addition to playing on Tales, he played with Lisa on her next couple of albums, like 97's Firecracker and her 2001 release Cake and Pie. He's also a member of other groups, Butterfly Joe and The Drakes. Next up, we have Jonathan Feinberg on drums and extra percussion. In addition to playing with a handful of bands that I have never heard of, Feinberg was also the very first drummer for the band They Might Be Giants. Hmm. He also spent the shortest amount of time of all They Might Be Giants drummers drumming for They Might Be Giants. Have they had a lot of drummers? They've had more than two. Eric Gangsland was the celloist, and like Joe Quigley, Eric also joined Lisa for the next couple of records. In addition to performing as a member of various orchestras, including the San Francisco Chamber Orchestra. He also played cello on a track for Dwight Yoakam's 2005 album, Blame the Vein, and on the score for the video game Diablo 3. Now, it's interesting about Diablo. They do change the music, but they don't do anything with the art. It looks exactly like the first one still today, and it frustrates me. Dan Seiden played electric guitar on Tails, as well as on Jewel's breakout release, Pieces of You, which Tom has sung parts of for us very beautifully. I have. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate that. And I couldn't find anything about him beyond that. Tim Bright was another guitarist on the album, and he has a lot more credits to his name, but nothing that we recognize by name. However, one of those projects whose name we didn't know beforehand was a band called Laszlo Bane, who was the group that wrote the song called Superman, which turns out we are very familiar with since it was used for nine seasons as the theme song for the wonderful medical farce Scrubs that Mark and I both love. Indeed. Scrubs has a song that for a while was my ringtone when you would call, Mark. Really? Yes, to troll Christine. I had it play when you called. It was when Zach Braff and Daniel Faison sang Guy Love. Do you remember it? Between two guys? Yeah, (laughs) you remember it. He also runs the Studio 60 Cycle, which is located in Brooklyn, New York. So Jennifer Frouchy played violin. Or at least that's, I'm guessing, how you pronounce her last name. It's the best attempt I'm going to give it. And saying that she plays violin is an incredible understatement because she's apparently a world-class violin player. So good, in fact, that her workhorse violin is on loan from a private foundation and was made 259 years before either of us were born by a little-known luthier named Stradivari. The violin itself is known as the X Cadiz, although that seems like a more 
recent development. She probably didn't use it for this album. Jennifer has appeared as a soloist for all the major symphony orchestras that the United States has to offer. She's also played in all of the best concert halls around the world, as well as performed with many prestigious operas and symphonies in other countries. So she's legit. Too legit to quit, even. Joseph Lynn also played violin, and that's all we've got, as this is his only credit attribution. Mm. Juan Patino provided backing vocals, and as we mentioned, he was also the producer, or at least the co-producer, since Lisa also gets a production credit on Tails, in addition to credits for lead vocals, harmonies, and acoustic guitar. Which brings us right back to Juan and Lisa. Juan Patino, at that point, had a bit of a background as a studio engineer, and he also had written music for commercials for Comedy Central. He had worked with Lisa Pryor and produced The Purple Tape, as well as the song Stay. So it made sense that he'd be the producer for Tales, since he and Lisa already had that working relationship, and he was already super familiar with a handful of the songs, having recorded them at least once before. However, and this is just my speculation based on a few accounts and not anything anyone else has made real claims about anywhere, but I think that familiarity and closeness of the two as an actual couple and the comfort that came from recording at Juan's home apartment studio might have lent itself to the recording of Tales taking a lot longer than it was supposed to have taken. I'm not complaining because in the end, the result is a very good album. But I think that if you're paying for studio time, you're maybe a bit more deliberate with the use of your time. Seeing as Stay had been released in May of 94, Lisa blew up over the summer of 94 with no album to support her on the coattails (laughs) of that success. So production started in September of 94 with the release date set for February of 95, which then got pushed to May and then got pushed back again. That's a really long time to have a number one song on the Billboard charts and nothing else to offer. Yeah, and that's kind of why we said earlier that this was potentially the most anticipated album of 95. Yeah. And so that's, again, why it's so odd that it took so long to do. And as we're about to get into, a lot of that time was just spent, you could say, fine-tuning, if you want to put it in a good light. But delays came as every aspect, and not just every note the album was gone over and reworked to perfection with a fine-tooth comb. In addition to getting every part of every part and every bit of texture on every level just right, when it came musically, Lisa also oversaw, or at least had her hand in much of the album's design, from the decision to do a second photo shoot for the booklet because she wanted to try different hairstyles, to time that she spent working on the cover art to get the font size perfect. Jeez, that's a, that's a lot of reasons to delay. But in 2008, Lisa put out a special edition of the Purple Tape on CD and included a bonus interview disc. And on that, talked a bit about her thoughts on making sure she was involved with an album's packaging. And she said, it's really about the music, but if you're not represented properly visually, that's what people see once you become a professional musician. Visuals. You see videos. You see artwork. The first thing somebody gets is what the tape looks like. It's not what it sounds like. 
she makes a valid point and while i appreciate that she takes such full ownership in what she does and she has a solid understanding of herself as a product beyond the music i have to say from experience that artist involvement is nice when there's a solid idea behind the direction of things but the second they slow the production down and start second guessing and nitpicking the difference between a 12 point font and 11 point font then it just gets counterproductive and makes it really hard for me to bite my tongue and play nice because at a point i'm like you didn't ask me as your designer for input on your chord changes so you need to trust that as your designer i know how to design stuff i know what is going to be aesthetically right but everybody mark is a designer and everybody knows how to give input yeah and i want to punch everybody in the face oh i don't think that's the right approach i also don't think that's exclusively a result of design work (laughs) yeah so tails was not a fast turnaround it took long enough to not just start a debate between those involved in the production and with the label as to whether or not it was a good thing. So much so that around the release of Tales, in addition to a straight review of the album, Entertainment Weekly put out a second article about it that was focused on the giant gap between stay dropping and Tales' eventual release. The article states, quote, Depending on whom you ask, the album should have already been released to capitalize on the hit or has been perfectly timed to distance Loeb from a song even Patino, who produced it, calls Overexposed. And Patino elaborates, we're bracing ourselves for the backlash. She got too successful too fast, which is a sentiment that was shared by Spin in their issue for December of 94. They named Stay Video of the Year and in an article discussing it said, when she, meaning Lisa, releases her first album next year on Geffen, she will have to work backward from the mainstream to the grassroots credibility. Which, either way, is an awkward position to be in. It is. And going back to that article from Entertainment Weekly, it doesn't pick a side of the argument, but it does go on to suggest, in a way, the year-long gap between hit and album might help. Given the grunge backlash and the resurgence of folk pop, perhaps America is in search of a female hootie Someone who can express intimate love letter sentiments in a dulcet, easy-to-sing-along fashion. And for better or worse, Tales by Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories was released September 26th of 1995, a full 15 months after the release of their first big single. And, luckily for the band, it seemed like taking their time to get it right didn't hurt. They also got lucky that Pitchfork wouldn't become a thing for another year, so they couldn't tear the album apart even though Spin may have tried. It turns out the waiting may have been too much for them, and despite naming Stay Video of the Year the year before, they gave the album a 4 out of 10. Oof. But aside from Spin, Tells was pretty well received by critics and radio and fans alike. It was declared that it reached certified gold status on December 1st of 95. That was just a little over two months since its release. It also reached gold status in Canada, and on the Billboard 200, it peaked at number 30, number 6 in New Zealand, and number 15 in Canada. So that other review that we mentioned previously from Entertainment Weekly, it reads, The primary purpose of Tales, Lisa Loeb's debut album, is to prove its creator isn't just a bespectacled lucky duck who landed a song on the Reality Bite soundtrack because she was a chum of Ethan Hawke's and ended up with a number one tune. That number one single closes out Tales, and by then, it's nice to be able to say, Lisa has certainly proven she's no one-hit wonder. Above all, Loeb has an (laughs) undeniable gift for creating an air of intimacy and vulnerability, which may well be enough for Stay fans looking for an additional dose of contemplative melancholy. 
I like it. Yeah. Do you remember discovering the song or getting into it? Or I don't have a specific memory of the first time I heard Lisa Loeb's song or when I picked up Tales. But that span of 94 and 95 is when I was coming around to rock music and spent a lot of time listening to KRPE. I just remember it kind of being present and being common. Same. It was one of those things where I think probably because they did work it backwards, where the album came after the successful single. And it was also at the time that I think probably both of us were just kind of getting into rock music on our own and listening to the radio and since it was one of those things that krbe picked up and just played a lot of yeah i think it probably like i don't have a specific memory of hearing it the first time but i do remember hearing it a lot and i remember always enjoying it so i think it probably just became just an ordinary thing because it was you know the radio would add new stuff and if it was good pay attention to it yeah for those of you who don't know reality bites the movie is set in houston Uh which is where we grew up and where k ARBE, the radio station, is located. And so I think that's one of the things where they attached to the movie soundtrack and wanted to take ownership in it because the soundtrack was such a solid soundtrack and such a big thing. And so being the rock radio station for a movie set in Houston, they did a good job of representing it on the air. Yeah, and I think I remember it well because I remember a lot about Reality Bites. That was kind of that, you know, we were on the cusp of this Gen X millennial generation, right? We're Mm -hmm. somewhere in between. And this is one of those quintessential Gen X movies that I remember as a kid. It was obviously made to an audience a little older than us, but it was a cool movie. Yeah. You know? And the music was one thing that was good about it. I mean, it had a lot of great music. Yeah. Me and some of my older friends, mainly just Pedro, were constantly back and forth over what has the better soundtrack, Reality Bites or Singles, because they're both from similar time periods and both represent the 90s and they're both incredible soundtracks. There were so many good soundtracks back then. There were. Yeah. It's one thing the 90s did well with soundtracks and another thing... But you guys are wrong. Okay, what are we wrong about? You're arguing what the best soundtrack was from that time period. It was obviously Waiting to Exhale. And that's when I quit the podcast. (laughs) But aside from Waiting to Exhale, the 90s had some great (laughs) soundtracks. And another thing that I think the 90s got right was by the times that Tales dropped. Like, I had been a fan of Atlantis. My brother James loved the Cranberries. My brother John was big on Tori Amos. And there was music everywhere, in all genres, being made by females. It was a natural and ever-present thing, and it wasn't just a novelty act where everyone was like, oh, look at this, is a great rock song from a girl. There wasn't that qualifying to cheapen it. Yeah, she didn't have to invent something. Right, and while she does talk about how the acoustic guitar thing could have pigeonholed her as folk, she wasn't the only female out there with a band. This was all even pre-Lilith Fair. Lilith Fair came after as a result of the sheer volume of popular female musicians. Lilith Fair wasn't trying to break female musicians into the mainstream. Yeah, right, right. And sure, there's still plenty of shallow acknowledgments to be had that Lisa was a babe, but I'd argue that was more on a multitasking level because it in no way swayed my opinion of her music and her abilities as a songwriter, but I still think she's adorable. You know what did sway my opinion of her? What's that? Her becoming a corporate shill for Geico a couple years ago. I don't recall that at all, but I mean, by that point, she had already had decades under her belt as a television personality in addition to her music career. She did. So I'm sorry if you're unable to appreciate... I just hated the Geico commercial with her, and I hated it. It was bad. 
So you disliked it because it was a bad commercial, not because you felt that she was selling out selling insurance or both? She was selling out as selling Geico and trying to replace a, a lizard. I have no recollection of that, but I do have recollection of seeing her live, not once, not thrice, but twice. <laughs> oh, yeah? Have you ever seen her? I have not. Out of all the bands that we've done, Lisa Loeb is the first that I haven't been able to find a good comprehensive concert history online for. Really? Yeah, which is a shame. The first time I saw her was at a secret show. It was one where it had been announced during the day that she was playing this small bar venue in Houston. And so I don't know if it was one of those things where you did your normal make excuses to not go with me or if it was because it was an actual bar and not an all ages thing and I had to use my real fake ID. <laughs> so I don't know if it was a bar show or if it was an all ages thing and you just made excuses, but... I ended up going down, and I don't remember the name of the venue, and I don't remember exactly what it was. It was somewhere, I would say, between, like, probably late junior year, early senior year. Hmm, okay. And it was a bar that had a stage that maybe just had, like, a six-inch rise on it, and it was maybe, like, 150-capacity space. So it wasn't huge, and it wasn't a very large crowd, but it was certainly full, and we were packed in there pretty tight. And it was just Lisa. She was playing just solo acoustic all by herself and what i really enjoyed most about that show and what was really memorable was she would talk and tell stories about the songs between the songs and at points on some of the songs she would be in the middle of a song and she would get a thought in her head and she would keep strumming whatever melody part she was strumming and she would just kind of break vocals and start talking and tell the story and she could go on for like two or three minutes telling a story and then once that thought that she'd had was done she would jump back into the song right at the point where she she left it. She'd be mid-verse and just pick up on the very next word and keep going. Oh, that's cool. It was. I thought that was very impressive that she knew her songs that well. And the other thing that stands out is that within the first song or two, she finishes and somebody in the crowd down front had a camcorder, an actual old school, requires a tape. And she was like, hey, that's a nice camera. Can I see it? And she takes it and she turns it around and she's like, so what's your name? And films him. And the guy's like, I'm Tom. And she's like, okay, well, Tom. And she closes the camera. She's like, you can have your camera back after the show. <laughs> and then set the camera on top of her amp. That's funny. You know, she's very nice and very polite about it. You can't stay mad at Lisa. It was one of those things where it was just a small, intimate event and filming things ruins it. But how will I show all of my friends on Instagram? Put your phones away. Live in the moment, people. Come on. The second time I saw her, I also don't remember specifically what the date was. She was touring in support of Cake and Pie. I know that. And so it was somewhere between 2001 to early 2003. It is around the time where she'd been doing a lot of touring with her and Dweezil. Mm -hmm. And she played the Engine Room, which was a nice mid-sized venue downtown Houston. But unfortunately, Dweezil couldn't make that date. And so she had somebody else filling in on guitar. And so it was her singing and playing guitar with a second guitarist, who unfortunately was not Dweezil Zappa, who I would have loved to have seen. But it was the two of them playing and singing. And it was great. It's awesome, man. It's a shame that you haven't seen her. She's good. I almost saw her a third time in like 2010 when I was in LA staying with my buddy Pedro. She was playing a free show at like Marina Del Mar. Pedro and I were planning to go and for some reason we didn't. And I don't know why. I don't know if it's because Pedro didn't want to deal with traffic or we were just decided to go surfing instead. We're so poor you couldn't afford to go to a free show? Yeah. That sounds like a bad joke. At the time it was true though. That's a special kind of poor, Mark. It is. Luckily... I was going to say those days are over, but that's not quite the title of the first track. Song one, It's Over. This was a microwaved rehash song that appeared on the purple tape. It's Over was track five on that release, but for Tales, it is the opening song. 
on that Purple Tape interview bonus CD, it deviates from talking about the Purple Tape to also address this Tales version, of which Lisa says, It's over Open's Tales because it's a really complicated song, and I wanted to start a major label album with something that represented the kind of music that I write. It's a song with a lot of different sections, and it has a lot of lyrics that turn inside of themselves over and over again. When I wrote the song, I tried to simplify it more and more, and my younger sister Debbie said, I like when you do all those weird chord progressions. She said, yeah, keep all those sections in there. Thanks, Debbie. The song opens with Lisa singing over some simple strums, seeming kind of slow, and it starts to pick up about 20 seconds in. And at 25 seconds, we have drums and a mandolin and a simple electric guitar enter. And it's another 30 seconds before the strings come in with some extra vocal harmony layers. And the pace seems to pick up a little more. And like Lisa mentioned, there are some interesting changes throughout as the structure of the song is more complex than a basic verse, chorus, verse, pop structure. And then it's over. Uh... I like what Lisa did here with this song. Yeah. Any particular parts jump out at you? I don't know. The whole thing, this, there's just this sense of longing that's palatable throughout the song. But it's not necessarily longing for something good. Okay. I don't know. It's, it's just interesting because, you, you know what I mean? Like, she's talking yeah. about, like, longing. I want you. I miss you. I wish you were here. Um, I'll do anything. You know, she talks about begging or pleading and stealing. And then when she talks about the person she's missing, she's like, the drone in your voice and the fly on the wall said, it's over, it's over, it's over. I like what she did here. I like the juxtaposition. There's a portion here where the lyrics say it. Yeah. Too many things held precious. Too many things held dear. That's what I hate. That's what I fear. Too much to ask for may leave me feeling lonely, but too little leaves me nothing. Yeah. We know we're starting out with something, you know, Stay is a good song. We all knew Stay when this album came out. But Stay isn't a complex song. It's not a deep song. There's not a lot there. Right. There's a bit more substance to this one. This song shows her as an actual songwriter. Yeah, it shows depth and it shows a wealth of abilities, both musically and lyrically. I don't really have a lot of context for this next one, Mark, because we grew up in Houston, Texas. Yep. Track two, Snow Day, which is another of the three songs in the album that appeared on the Purple Tape. Snow Day was the first song on the Purple Tape, and it was conveniently written on a snowy day. At least she's consistent. She is. We don't have to dig deep to understand this one. Yep. She said that she had written it on a snowy day in New York. And on the interview for the Purple Tape, Lisa compares and contrasts the difference between trying to get through a normal day in New York during a heavy snowstorm and how everything in Dallas would come to a grinding halt if there's even a light dusting of snow. Yep. Quoting her, she said, There was something very quiet when it snowed in Dallas and very bittersweet. And that's sort of the feeling of the song. I felt like I wanted there to be some kind of positivity because the song goes to the extreme of depression. And it speaks to me even now when I sing it. Hmm. It's interesting. When you think of a song called Snow Day, you would assume it's going to emote these feelings of like, kids, you're missing school, Snow Day, yay, exciting. Right. But that's not here at all. No, this is much more of a contemplative reflection, kind of just being stuck inside and alone. Right. Instead of thinking of going outside playing and having a snow day, having fun, it's more like you're sitting and you're looking out at this landscape that's covered in winter death. And thinking about what you're missing out on as a result. She's missing her medicine, man. Yeah. And her medicine is you, Mark. <laughs> the opening of the song is, it's a bad day. It's a bad day. 
Which gets repeated. It does. And then she ends that opening stanza with, you're my medicine. Mm-hmm. And so it goes through here lyrically talking about, I'd say feeling low, but that's an understatement. Oh, it's the depths of depression. Lyrically, it says, it's a sinking feeling that pulls me through the seat of chairs. So it's not just a mild passing lowness. I actually really like that line. I think that's a strong. Yeah. But then that's followed with countering it. When will you come rescue me, find solace and take me there? And so throughout, this keeps kind of going back and forth between feeling low and feeling alone and knowing that there's more out there. And the final line of the song is, it's a long ride, which I think is a applicable way to finish up the lyrical back and forth that she's been going through. Yeah. Musically, it starts with some light, fluttery finger picking that Lisa mentioned in one of the only parts on the album where the acoustic guitar is double tracked so it could help drive the musical feel of snow falling. And it's not just that acoustic part is doubled. There's two separate parts that play together and have some slight variation. So even when it is just Lisa and the acoustic, it has a nice full quality to it. But the band all hits around the one minute mark with drums and electric and bass. And while the acoustic picking lightens up, Lisa's vocal delivery fluctuates and at times takes over fitting a bunch of syllables delivered in a rapid fire way that's always as clear and easy to understand as any of her slow songs. Yeah, I think that was one of the impressive points with the vocals on this one was a lot of times when artists pick up the pace, things kind of get jumbled. And she manages to do a wonderful job here of enunciating rather than sounding like her mouth is full of taffy. Taffy is song number three. And before we jump into everything here on Taffy, I did find on angelfire.com slash CO3 slash Trinity slash Lisa slash Taffy dot HTML. Ooh. Lisa's own words, taffy is, quote, about a gesture, about sitting next to a friend and elbowing them in the side when you're talking to another person who's totally lying to you. It's about that bruise you get when your friend's nudging you. So I want to thank the person who created this page, which again is https colon backslash backslash www.angelfire.com slash co3 slash trinity slash lisa slash taffy.html. How did you even find an Angel Fire page these days? <laughs> They're still indexed on Google, man. When I was looking for our sponsor, songbeatings.com, I saw that and I was like, wait, mentioning it from HTTPS colon backslash backslash www.angelfire.com slash CO3 slash Trinity slash Lisa slash Taffy.html sounded more humorous in my head than just saying songmeetings.com. I think you are correct, sir. So that's my big contribution to this. I appreciate it. This song is counted in by cymbal crashes and a tom fill. And there's some indistinct vocal yelling in the background. And on the whole, it kind of feels like the intro that would come years later on that track, Hanging Around by Counting Crows, which we love. Mm -hmm. I love that random guy who yells. It's one of my favorite parts of the This Desert Life album. Anyway. It's upbeat, it rocks, it has the strong, fun energy that grabs you from the get-go. Since Stay, as a song, was released before the album Tales was ever made, Taffy has the honor of technically being the first single released in support of Tales. And if there's an analogy that screams Lisa lived in New England more than this chorus, I haven't heard it yet. I can agree with that. It's literally... Actually, the bottom line, you tell the truth sometimes... Sometimes you tell the truth like you're 
pulling taffy. Another thing that we could never relate to growing up in Houston. Nope, we didn't have taffy. On the whole, I don't think it's necessarily a flashy track, but it does showcase the full band and does a nice job of driving home the point that Lisa made about Lisa Loeb and Nine Stories being a rock band, and this certainly is not meant to be a folk album. As the song goes on, the last time through the chorus, they do a nice bit of shifting gears. The electric drops out and the drums slow down as they do a final pass on the actually bottom line lines that give the words a little more punch. I read a couple of reviews on this album where they kind of analyze some lines in ways that I always took things to be a little different. So I figure that there are points in this album where people analyzed it wrong. I had read something where that line, the sometimes you tell the truth like you're pulling taffy, as being somebody who reluctantly was telling the truth, whereas I always figured to be more of a stretching the truth. Yeah, I think it's more of just like weaving a lie, like spinning a lie, pulling out a story. I don't really have a lot to say to that because musically I like it. Lyrically, it doesn't do a whole lot for me. Lyrically, the verses are kind of vague. And simplistic. Yeah. It lacks complexity from what we had before. And so I think it comes back to the song serving more as a showcase for the band than necessarily being a lyrical showcase for Lisa. Which wraps us up and brings us to song four, When All the Stars Were Falling. It also starts off with the full band, but it's a drastically different pace from Taffy as they slow jam the crap out of the song. And it's got a nice guitar solo bit that starts just after 1.30. And on the whole, it's not a bad track. There just isn't much that needs to be said about it. Although to its credit, aside from being just a solid track, it also does a nice job of shifting gears on the album Mm -hmm. from the first couple. And it sets up the right mood for something a little more somber as we move into the next track, Do You Sleep? This was the second single that was released to support Tales more successful than taffy was as a single you know why why is that because it's a better song than taffy no argument here this is the third of three songs on the album the purple tape that also made its way to tales it was track nine and the fourth song on side b of the cassette but it also had previously appeared on the second liz and lisa album days were different although lisa had the idea and wrote the intro for the song after the liz and lisa version was recorded talking about the song lisa has said it was funny because after the song was written grunge became very popular and there were a lot of angry women singers i was quiet and acoustic i would always say they might write a song they stub their toe and they would write a song about the pain they feel when they stub their toe but as a writer i would write about all the different obsessive and neurotic thoughts all about that subject it seems a little crazy but really we all have so many facets to situations It's not just single-minded reaction to something that happens. It was important for me for all of these different things to come out in the song. To this song's success, Lisa did perform it on Saturday Night Live on October 7th, 1995. And when discussing the song lyrics, she said, You smoked with the ghost in the back of my head. This is a concrete image. Smoke, smoke. It's probably related to the fact that the guy I was dating at the time was kind of a stoner. And then I used to be more metaphorical, like... 
you're messing around with me. And the ghost in the back of my head is something that's like ephemeral. It's when somebody messes around with you mentally on a deeper level, bringing up things from your past that aren't even really existent anymore. You know, like a ghost isn't really existent. It's based on something that used to exist, but it's kind of like a figment of your imagination in a way. Although there's a presence to it because it obviously affects you. Interesting. Word salad. Musically, the guitar picking part isn't a simple one. And to showcase Lisa's talents further vocally, she gives a performance here at the start that has a hurried vocal cadence to it that complements the picking pattern before the band comes in and the electric guitar takes over carrying the melody line. And Lisa's vocals then shift to a more sung delivery through the end of the first chorus. And there's a seriousness and strength that underline the emotion on the vocal delivery. And the emotionally driven lyrics, like Stay, this is a breakup song, but it's much more of a reaching a tipping point in a relationship. There's still parts where she's asking questions, but it turns out that she doesn't really care about the answers because she's kind of already made up her mind that she's moving on. Yep. The chorus is, I don't know and I don't care if I ever will see you again. I don't know and I don't care if I ever will be there. But she's realizing that this failed and it's not what it would be. And maybe it's changed her view of relationships. She said, you can't give yourself absolutely to somebody else. This is definitely a tumultuous point in a relationship, like a brewing hurricane ready to bring an end to it all. Uh, uh, yeah. Track six, Hurricane. Hurricane starts off soft in a way that's soft, but also moody and brooding. And the strings in this do a wonderful job of adding to the effect of the turmoil of emotions that have been on display with the last couple of tracks. And this one swirls them all together and has some nice moments of letting them all build and storm and blow itself out. And then there's a shift in the song starting about 3.30 that then kind of plays the track out in a way that, again for the second time on the album feels very crows to me which as a vibe is never a bad thing no that's a high praise or at least early crows yeah you're not saying it's accidentally in love no uh... yeah i don't have much to add to this one but i do have interesting things to tell you about rose colored times track seven rose colored times that was a terrible segue but it worked like Taffy before it, this is another nice showcase of the full band being a solid band, and it has some of those musical shifts to display an underlying complexity despite the seeming easiness of the music. It's interesting. I was reading an article I found on Out Jersey, and the interviewer asked her, your album Tales has powered the childhoods of many millennials. Given that this year marks the 25th anniversary, what's your favorite track from the album? And Lisa Loeb says... I adore Rose Colored Times. The track is quintessential 90s, dark, mysterious, and very grunge. Hmm. It's based on one of my favorite movies, Paper Moon, starring Tatum O'Neill. The song was actually recorded in Tatum O'Neill's Summer Beach House. Hmm. Yeah, so this is one that she really likes. Interesting. This one, it does a nice job of bringing the vibe of the album back up. Mm -hmm. It's a bit brighter and upbeat, so the album doesn't get bogged down in just being mopey, which is a good thing considering... That track eight, Sandalwood, swings us back to a song that's moody acoustic guitar, starts off strumming slowly with a delicate vocal delivery that opens the song. And that's pretty much it on this one. 
but the guitar and the vocals do build ever so slowly in intensity without breaking that soft, delicate spell. And for me, this might be my favorite of Lisa's vocal performances on the album because of how earnest and vulnerable of a delivery that she achieves going into the final chorus. You and Lisa are on the same wavelength because she says Sandalwood is another favorite because I had originally written it about someone who I had a lot of resentment for and at the last minute decided to flip it and make it a love song. Hmm. I really like this song a lot, but I really don't like the smell of Sandalwood. Neither do I. <laughs> I was going to say the exact same thing, that my only complaint about this song is that I don't like Sandalwood. And I think it's summed up best in the episode of Futurama where Bender becomes an ultimate robot fighter, where he's in a marketing meeting and they're talking about how his popularity is slipping because he's not even moving his Bender brand of bath soaps, to which he grabs a sample soap, sniffs it, and says, well, I told you to go with Teaberry, not Sandalwood, to which the marketing guy is like, yeah, but Sandalwood is pure lowest common denominator. If you can't move Sandalwood, you can't do anything. Ha! <laughs> it's funny. I don't like sandalwood. But despite that, there's some visuals here that are pretty straightforward, but still effective. The portion of the verse where she says, I want to kiss the back of your neck, the top of your spine, where your hair hits. There's just a, an intimacy to the lyrics that help give it a relatable effectiveness. That and the very last couple of lines kind of leave things in a vague place. It says, your hand so hot burns a hole in my hand. I wanted to show you. So despite that intimacy, I think she is at a point where she is feeling alone. Alone, song nine. This one starts with a little feedback that cuts out as a simple acoustic lick plays and Lisa jumps in with the vocals. So it isn't jarring from the sparseness of the previous track, but the acoustic line does nicely shift in the mix into an electric taking over the lead. And instead of being another downer, the band picks the mood back up. So the album is a nice roller coaster of ups and downs that I think helps showcase how nicely sequenced the album is throughout. It creates a good balance. It does. While the part itself isn't hard, this song probably has the heaviest of the electric guitar tones on display on Tails. I would agree with that. I found a review from The Observer in October 5th, 1995, which is the independent newspaper serving Notre Dame and St. Mary's. France or University? University. Okay. The reviewer, Christian Stein, did give this album four out of five stars. But one thing he notes is that Lisa Loeb said when referring to the song alone, quote, Fugazi has these great guitar stops, and I wanted to do something like that on this song. <laughs> uh-huh. So she's going, you know, full-blown Fugazi here. That's great. And I'm laughing because there is even a Fugazi song where just in the middle of, like, a jam, they yell, stop. They actually say stop? Stop. That's funny. But I love how when she's talking about the album, despite the range her music actually lives in, how she's open to and aware of all these other bands and all these other genres and letting them have influence on oh, her. Oh, yeah. She owns it. She knows what her influence is. I never would have thought that Fugazi was an influence on Lisa Loeb, but I love that they are, and I love that she's willing to admit it. I do, too. It slaps. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to bring that back or if you were going to leave me waiting Oh, Waiting for Wednesday? Track 10. It takes the rock energy and keeps it, but also turns things up super bright. So this is the happiest sounding of Lisa's lyrically depressing breakup songs. 
According to musicindustryhowto.com, this song is about a woman who thinks she's pregnant and is waiting for her period. She's in a bad relationship and knows the man is going to leave her, so she decides she's going to say goodbye first. That quote is news to me and puts an entire new meaning to the line, Waiting for Wednesday, I pray you'll put me on the spot. Yep. I like the repetition of the show you goodbye line. Instead of just saying I'm going to leave you, she's going to show you goodbye, which is fun. Yeah, it's a nice turn of phrase. And if by chance you, Lisa, listen to this, I hope these quotes that we're getting and finding are all correct. I can't say with 100% certainty that I buy this. But we can say that track 11 is called Lisa Listen. Lisa Listen is also a type of her glasses from the Lisa Loeb Eyewear Company. Anyway, with regards to the song that we should be talking about, since the band likes to pick things up when the album starts to get too heavy, they do the same thing when it starts to get too light, and Lisa Listen brings things back down with another moody slow jam. Oh yeah, it's time for a slow jam. And to me, this is the track where I think that the full band really shines. Not because it's showy, but there's moments of small solo licks throughout. And for the most part, everyone just nicely sits in the pocket and there's an almost dark twangy quality to it, which is all perfectly showcased when all the instruments drop out around 2.15 to let Lisa deliver a couple of lines unaccompanied. And then they all come back in, picking up like they never missed a note. This is also another one of those where I found one review that was trying to interpret a line in a way that seemed odd to me. So I was curious what your take on this is. Do you think this was written as someone talking to Lisa or is this Lisa talking to herself? I don't know, but I'm going to go based on other stuff she's written. Like, I don't feel that the song is clear on that front, mm-hmm. but based on other stuff that she's written, I'm going to assume it's more introspective and in her talking to herself. What were your thoughts? That's how I've always kind of taken it. And maybe the reason I took exception to the review is because they were talking specifically about one of my favorite lines in here, which is, I will not judge you by the way you play your instrument. No, that's true as fiction. Sometimes I do. So a little self-critique in there? Well, the review said that it was meant as tongue-in-cheek, playful, sexual innuendo. What? Yeah. That's somebody bringing a lot into that, if you ask me. I could see how, if you're thinking dirty, how you play your instruments... No. But there's nothing else in the song that would even remotely suggest that. No. And I, I agree with you completely that this is very much just an introspective like look, just more of her talking to herself. And she's acknowledging that she's too critical. Yeah. Which being somebody who at times takes myself way too seriously, I get. But there are a couple other lines in here that I really like. The opening verse, if the way you drank your coffee was the way you looked at me, then I could take both my hands off the TV. Yeah. And it goes on, I've been sleeping on half of my bed lately. And I think both of those carry a very strong vibe. I don't know. I, I enjoy this song. I do too. I also enjoy Garden of Delights. The next one, song 12. Both do a great job of really showcasing the talent of the entire band. Yeah, it's a good showcase of range. For sure. Now, Garden of Delights was originally one that Lisa had written for the first Liz and Lisa self-titled album. It does bring in that same energy that upbeat energy of waiting for wednesday without being overbearingly poppy it's another solid showcase of the band rocking for my money the bass really stills the show on this one it literally as tom likes to say slaps yes 
But there is also a nice part where the lyrics break down into a rhythmic series of layered ba 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 da dums yeah. that work much better here than it did on the Liz and Lisa version, which it's fun and it's light on that one, but it was very clunky and awkward. And it works better here for you? It works you? much better here for me. Cool. Yeah. I did bother to go and listen to a lot of those crossover tracks to compare them and i can see the appeal of liz and lisa that they were on the right track to something but i think that here it shows that she's grown and become stronger it gives her a staying power if you will oh i like that i missed you mark track 13 stay parentheses i missed you for this song stay on the album tales it is the same version that was on the reality bite soundtrack however that parenthetical i missed you portion of the title was added for this album to avoid confusion with another song of the same singular word name that was popular in the early 90s and so once Lisa's stay started gain traction popularity by the time tales came out they listed it with i missed you interesting yeah that other 90s stay had been released in 92 by a band called shakespeare's sister and while i gave it a listen and i can't say that i was familiar with it and i certainly was not familiar with the band by name it apparently featured Shaban Fahey, who had been in a band known as Banana Rama, who had had some success, as well as Dave Stewart, who had been a member of the Eurythmics. Really? And their version of Stay hit number one in the UK, Ireland, and Sweden, and number four in both the US and Canada. So it's not just an instance of being polite for some random song. Being pre-internet, I can see how there may have been some confusion about just seeing the name in print. And the inability to look it up quickly on your phone, thinking maybe it was a cover, which it was not. She had a fun quote in Cosmo in 2014, looking back. She said, I'm really excited that the song had the staying power, and she laughed at her own joke. I've been in phases where I didn't want to be categorized or known for just one song, but as I've gotten older and wiser, I do appreciate being known for one song. I know so many musicians that haven't had that opportunity to have even one song have some notoriety. It does make a big difference. It's given me creative freedom. It's given me so many experiences and led to meeting so many interesting people. I remember meeting David Bowie and Elton John. I met Bruce Springsteen coming out of the bathroom. I've been fans of them my entire life, and it's fun to be a part of an iconic movie. Despite its popularity, this song was never released as a single for the album. Because it had already been released. Which is still an awkward sequencing of events that it's weird to think about. But it was a smart move on her part to include on Tales. Lisa, who even before music was paying the bills, had taken time to learn about and getting a handle on the business side of music. So she was smart enough as a musician to own her masters. That's such a big deal now for musicians. It always has been. A lot of musicians early on in the game, they don't know what that means. And what that means is the rights to their songs. You literally own your songs and your rights to them and how they're used. And a lot of musicians don't think about that. Like Taylor Swift? Yeah, it screwed Taylor over, which is why she's had to re-record all of her albums. Well, she now owns all the rights and has done Taylor's version and she's raking it in now. But that's why she had to do Taylor's versions on the first few, because she didn't own them. So she had to do Taylor's versions to have versions of her early popular songs that then she had full creative control of. She may have the money now to buy her full catalog, but originally that's what got her started on that whole road. 
So Lisa owned her master. So when Stay was picked up for the Reality Bite soundtrack, even though she was an unknown to the public and even though RCA at that point had already decided that they didn't want to sign her, they still had to pay her to use the song on that record. And better still is that since the song had already been released and Lisa owned it when Geffen put out Tales, they, as a label, had to pay her extra to be able to include the song that she owned on the album that she was making for Geffen. So it's like she got paid twice for the one song. Oh, that's funny, man. Good for her. It's a good song. I loved it. I remember it well. It's just a positive song. It is a good song. I don't know if it's entirely positive. It is a good song, though. It's just upbeat. It's fun to listen to. Right. I think, like some of her other upbeat songs, there are some lines in here which maybe aren't so upbeat. But as a whole, I think it does leave you feeling at least in a good space because it's empowering, even if it's not happy. Yeah. I think it's a good way to close out the album. I do, too. It wrapped it up nicely. It does. It was the gateway drug that got people in, and it's the one that sees them walking away from this now. Indeed. In another interview years later, talking about Stay and looking back on the album as a whole, Lisa says that Stay was a big hit, and I had a couple of other hits that were lesser, but still very present in the world. Stay is a gateway song, like Tom said. It's part of people. They couldn't help it. It was always on the radio. But I really appreciate having a song like that. I personally know and have seen other musicians who have had hits that kind of are angry at those hits because those are the songs that people really know. It's funny. Sometimes I go out and I play concerts and people tell me they're the hugest fan and then say, so what have you been doing over the last 20 years? Uh. And I say, I've been putting out a record almost every other year, among other things. So that can be frustrating. But luckily... By watching behind the music or hearing stories from other popular musicians, I've definitely been able to look at the positive side of having such a big hit. It's pretty amazing. And these are all really nice humans coming up to tell me their story or to come to my show, even just to hear that one song. I understand that because I have that relationship with other musicians who have just one song that might have meant a lot to me. And I think that says a lot about Lisa as a person. Yeah, I like this album. The whole thing, it's good. I listen to Lisa Loeb pretty regularly and have listened to her. Christine's a fan. She liked her. Um, so it's one of those fun bands that we enjoy together. And it holds up. Yeah. And as we mentioned previously, I don't have a specific memory of when this entered my personal music lexicon, as it were. No. But it's been there pretty much since it came out. And it's potentially gotten more mileage as I've gotten older. For me, in the last 10 years or so, it's really become one of my main go-to albums. If I don't know what else to listen to, it's just kind of like, oh, well, let's put on Tails. Nice. And I don't think it's ever really a bad pick. It's especially a great album if I need something to calm me down or to help me wind down. Nice. So what are your top three, Mark? Number three, Sandalwood. Don't like the smell, but I love the song. Nice. Number two, Lisa Listen. And my number one is Do You Sleep? Interesting. So my number three is Do You Sleep? Okay. My number two is Sandalwood. And my number one is the pumpkin spice latte of the album with Stay. (laughs) (laughs) So you're saying it's a safe choice? It is. I'm going with the safe choice. I'm going with the basic white girl choice. Stay is a great track, and by no means do I want to imply that it's not. I just love it. I just figured that it would probably be your number one, and so, like on other albums, I decided to try to give some love in other places. Nice. 
Speaking of giving love to other places, next episode, we're going to not stray very far from Lisa Loeb as we talk about Evil Empire by Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> love it. So if you want to be prepared for that episode, go ahead and give that a listen. So are you a Lisa Loeb fan? Did we do justice to this album? What are your top three? Feel free to reach out to us. You can go to onceeverytwoweeks.com and there you can get a link to all of our socials. You can send us an email from that or you can go to our Instagram, which Mark tirelessly manages, making sure to provide you with access to all of our insight, thoughts, and content through Instagram. So give us a follow and leave us a comment. If we have more than one listener out there, we'd love to hear from you. And remember, the best thing you can do for our podcast is leave us a review on whatever platform you listen to your podcasts. That is correct. But for now, thanks for listening. We will see you in a fortnight. Once Every Two Weeks is brought to you in part by Burrow Baracho Records. Thank you.